You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this series, we're discussing landscape and ecology and thinking about how what we build relates to the natural world around us. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. What's really the big difference between ourselves and an architectural practice is from the word go. Our time zone is so deep and so long and it's rooted and grounded in the geology of a place which underlies all buildings and it goes forward and engages with these critical interlinked aspects of climate and biodiversity and health. So when we go on site, we're fighting the corner of natural processes all the way through the delivery aspect of the design. Our guest today is landscape architect Jo Gibbons of J&L Gibbons. Her wide-ranging projects include the enormously popular Dalston Curve Garden in Hackney, which prior to the pandemic was attracting over 150,000 visitors annually and Walpole Park, the historic landscape in Ealing, which is the setting of John Soane's Pitzinger Manor. Before we interview our guest today, we've got two news stories we want to highlight. The first is the furor about the Serpentine Pavilion's carbon-negative claims and the temporary pavilion's floor slab that contains 85 cubic meters of concrete. This year's pavilion by South African practice Counterspace has social sustainability at its heart, with fragments of the pavilion located in four local communities. I've been a big fan of the Serpentine Pavilions for years, but climate emergency does require a different lens for thinking about what a temporary pavilion means, and it's great to see the environmental credentials of the pavilion being carefully scrutinized. George, what do you think? Yes, I agree. Perhaps, though, if the pavilions were permanent, but in a new location each time, rather than always being in Hyde Park, say one year in a park in Croydon, the next year in Enfield or even further afield, then as well as the environmental impacts being spread over a longer time, then people would get to enjoy these really special pieces of architecture for longer too. It would be a real shame if we can't build anything temporary. We just have to think about it differently. We're recording this on a very hot June afternoon when the thermometer is just about to hit 30 degrees It makes our second news story about the Climate Change Committee's latest assessment of UK climate risk particularly relevant. Since its previous report five years ago, the CCC has highlighted the fact that new adaptation measures are failing to keep pace with climate risk. AJ News reporter Ella Jessel has observed that the UK's housing stock is not prepared for future deadly heat waves. 
I was judging the Passive House Awards recently, and overheating was a critical criteria for assessing the success of the schemes. George, are you taking this into account in your work now? Well, I noticed Mark Barry from Archetype in Ella's article talking about how Passive House methodology is a really robust way of preventing overheating, and I fully agree with that. And Further, I'm adding external shading to all my projects in the southeast, whether it's planted pergolas, big overhangs, or blinds within the window build-up, because these heat waves are not just something for the far future. They're, they're starting to happen now, and yeah, we really do need to protect occupants from them. Well, in Mediterranean countries, people have been used to these kinds of passive measures for years, and we'll have to start getting used to them here, too. Yes, yes, we're a getting to be a hot country now we'll need shutters and little courtyards and light wells with cooling breezes that allow uh, dual aspects uh, typologies yeah there's a lot that we need to change Our guest today is landscape architect Joe Gibbons of J&L Gibbons. Joe, we're absolutely delighted to have you with us today as part of this series dedicated to landscape. On too many projects, landscape is an afterthought. I've been heartened to see that both Architects Declare and ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, have put the ecological and biodiversity crises at the heart of their campaigning. The sustainability debate is no longer just about carbon. About a decade ago, I visited one of Kevin McLeod's housing projects in Swindon, and I was told that on his developments, the landscape architect does the initial site assessment prior to any master planning. Too often, landscape architects are not at the table early enough in the design process. What's your view on this? I have an entirely architectural background. And now that we're in our 35th year of JNL Gibbons, we don't go near a project unless we're right up there at the front end, whether that's that actually fantastic. with the full responsibility or whether it's working alongside very, very wonderful colleagues who we've built strong relationships, whether that's the engineers, the architects or whoever. It doesn't matter as long as we're at the table right at the start, because as you rightly say, as the baseline, you have to have really, really good survey information and good analysis and a good understanding of the interlinkages between the social, the cultural and the environmental before you can start to make a proposition. Well, I'm encouraged to hear you say that there are clients who will hire a landscape architect from the beginning. Well, I have to say that we consider a lot of our clients as our colleagues in the built environment industry. So often a client will not know that and he'll go to his architect and say, who do we need? And our relationships with a lot of magnificent architectural practices is built over many decades now. And they will say, get Joe in or something. And, and that, you know, in this day and age where there's a lot of stresses and strains in getting anything into the ground. You need to enjoy it, don't you? <laughs> so I really only work with people I like <laughs> and respect. 
You've talked about the urban forest and the huge impact it has on our quality of life. And even on the side of your house in Highbury, there's a sign written on a blind window demanding that people plant trees. How would you say that trees affect people? Well, I feel I am a tree and I practice Tai Chi in the park every morning. And I feel seriously that that rooting into the ground when you're undertaking a meditative practice, which is also martial art, it's very similar you can get great a lot of inspiration from the way in which trees anchor themselves and uh, reach to the skies. I feel incredibly passionate about trees. I think they silently make a city worth living in. I really can't think of any other thing, natural aspect of a city, which modifies the climate carbon sequestrates, intercepts the rainfall, creates huge biomass, huge biodiversity. You know, it can change the temperature 10 degrees from a hot street to a shady sidewalk that harbors so much wildlife. I mean, trees are essential part of city making and their life extends if we give them the right place and uh, priority way beyond ours. So the trees that I've grown up in Islington around, because I'm born and bred in Islington, are maybe 120 years old. I've known them for 60. They will go on, hopefully, for another three or 400 years. So there's something really magical about trees, especially in cities, I think, create deep connection with nature in a way that that often people take for granted. Well, fortunately, there is an increasing focus on trees at the moment. Trees are rising on the government agenda. The England Trees Action Plan was released in May, and the National Model Design Code calls for tree-lined streets. Everywhere you turn, there are tree planting initiatives. And as you say, trees have a tremendous role in climate change adaptation and mitigation, and they can improve building performance. They can reduce overheating, influence the impact of wind around buildings, and reduce reflection and glare. Do you think designers are taking sufficient notice of this important microclimate aspect of trees? Do you see that in your work? We fight for trees all the time because trees are are incredibly dynamic. It requires a really, really multidimensional headspace to understand what is needed to provide for a tree in a city over several hundred years when we are going more and more engineered below ground. I mean, the engineering of our pavements are ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous in my view. We're losing our soils and the soils are absolutely critical. I've written a book about city soils. And so they need to be considered either the protection of existing trees, which is incredibly important, or the creation of new opportunities, or indeed as the result of, say, the mayor's transport strategy, which commits to um, making porous five hectares of ground in London per annum, that's proposal 42 if you want to look it up, is to do with gaseous exchange. If you don't create the soil conditions below ground with the right soil volumes, 
you won't be able to sustain that tree into full maturation. And so that requires a real detailed understanding of building setbacks relation to species, because obviously that tree is going to grow. And even if you plant it small, it may be a large species tree. How that relates to any facade, what's happening below ground, how the drainage works, how it relates to the street, buses, people. It's a very complex issue. The tree pit detailing is absolutely critical. And wherever we can, we seek not to create isolated pockets of soil, but we seek to create tree trenches or connected soil volumes in order that we maximize the rooting potential below hard surfaces. So it is very technical. It requires a lot of working closely with our engineering and our architectural colleagues if you're serious about either protecting or creating space for new tree planting. There's a lot of actually good guidance about trees published by the Tree Design Action Group. I believe you're involved with them. Can you tell us what they do? And Yep, absolutely. They are a brilliant group, multidisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary, whatever you want to call it. It's tree... Um, arboriculturalists, tree specialists, engineers, planners, architects, landscape architects, all coming together, ferociously passionate about trees. They publish guidance. It's all free on their website, TDAG. And it has a lot of really good examples. So rather than just saying, this is how you do it, it says there's a number of very good case studies which are given because every site is different, so you can quickly pick up how to approach it. It gives really key advice on the process, which is very, very complex. Those publications relate to one which is brilliant, which set the scene called No Trees, No Future, to Trees and Hard Landscape, and then there's one that's just recently come out about trees and planning, which is an incredibly complex area. Uh, So yes, they're all free and they can be downloaded off the website. And it's a, it's a tremendous group. It's a great asset. We'll put a link in the show notes. Because trees sometimes can get treated by councils like they're a huge maintenance problem. Like with the council in Sheffield trying to say that a new little sapling was better than a huge mature street tree they were looking to remove. In your view, is it partly a procurement issue that the maintenance contractors want to charge for stuff that isn't even necessary? For example, when you see trees along the canal by here east in Hackney just decapitated, it's really hard to see what the reason for that would be. Is outsourced arboriculture a racket? Well, it's highways. It's to do with PFIs, private finance initiatives. It's to do with maintenance contracts where I'm afraid to say it is cheaper to remove the tree than to maintain it over a 25-year period, in their view, because they're not taking in the whole currency of value of that tree. They are just looking after the carriageway and the pavement. And it's despicable. And I'm writing to um, on the borough of Islington because I fear that there is the most terrible, insipid, incremental removal of trees because there is not 
the maintenance of the trees that's embedded within the highways budget. So if you go up Highbury Fields, there's a nice, beautiful, broad sidewalk. One line of trees is within Highbury Fields. The other one, you'll see there's a very suspicious change in the tarmac quality. That is the secret line that tells you that one side is parks, one side is highways. And I nearly accosted the highways department taking down a tree last October, which was perfectly fine because they were making space for bike racks. So what sort of madness is that? I'm afraid that is, in my view, that is utterly mad because I'm a cyclist and cyclists want trees to create nice shady places and beautiful roadways and so on. This thing of, of fractured or lack of connectedness in our cities is really, really disturbing. And I think there is a massive amount of work to do that Trees for Cities do. They are fantastic charity as well that bring together partners, whether it's the local authority, community groups and professionals to enable and to support highways authorities and other parts of the local authority to see the benefits. And really, if we want to increase the canopy cover in London and other cities, we have to be finding those places. We not only need to be looking after our existing canopies, which have not reached their peak, they still have masses of work to do. So all those trees in Sheffield have probably not reached their peak in terms of carbon sequestration, and they're being taken out before they reach that. And it'll take 150 years for the saplings that they replace them with to do that. But it's to do with actually finding places to enhance the canopy cover in our cities. The important aspect of what you've just picked up is that with this numbers game that the government throw out every now and again, which I think is fantastic, 30,000 here, 30,000 hectares there, X number of million. It's a farce because unless the local authorities are provided with the means by which to maintain them, not for one year, not for two years, not for five years, but 25 years minimum, to establish that tree in its environment, then it's worthless. So there is a massive amount of what used to be for all of us common sense in the nurturing of nature needs to be embedded back and the soft stuff is often the hard stuff you know you get little sniggers in meetings when you start talking about this this kind of thing because people think it's the cuddly bit and it's not it's actually the most vital bit which makes the places that we're creating beautiful enhances the city environment makes it a place we want to be what I believe we can offer as a profession is this sense of how of interconnectedness, of how we work in an ecocentric rather than egocentric way, how we see the pluriverse. We are incredibly dominant on this planet, but we have to connect climate change, the biodiversity challenge or emergency and the health emergency. We have to see that all connected because it is. People don't want a simplified message. They actually want people to help them understand and appreciate the complexities. 
and certainly through our social enterprise Landscape Learn, we've invited experts to join us on a walk under a particular theme in a particular place. And we've talked very specifically about various aspects of the environment. We have a very broad audience and everyone is fully engaged immediately. Not all of our listeners may be familiar with Landscape Learn. Can you just explain what it is and what you're up to? Yeah, we're on our 30th anniversary of, of JNL Gibbons in 2016, we felt it was a good time to launch a social enterprise. The profession as a whole, I'd say, still has a way to go before people understand what the hell it is. It uh, has a sometimes an awkward relationship with architecture, which is unfortunate and utterly unnecessary. We felt that the most important thing to do was to be generous about sharing our knowledge in order to curate events, publications, whatever, that would share these interconnected worlds. We haven't got enough landscape architects. We need lots more. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, but that's a perfect segue into my next question because many of our listeners are architects and often architects, as you say, and landscape architects work together on a project. You've worked on projects with Muff, the Dalston Eastern Curve Garden, and Ruskin Square by East Croydon Station. So how could architects work better with landscape architects? What would you like to say to architects? Well, I think it's for the landscape architecture profession to step up as well. I mean, I'm from an entirely architectural background, so I think it needs to come from both camps. But I think first and foremost, there needs to be a feeling that there is a genuine understanding in the scope of work, the breadth of knowledge that we have. So there needs to be openness, interest, a desire to really properly engage with natural processes rather than have them as an add-on and to enjoy that discussion which often means that things are challenged in a new way and I think there's plenty of architects that do that already but there are plenty plenty of architects who really don't probably understand what a landscape architect can contribute to a project. You've been shortlisted for the Highgate Cemetery competition. I believe the winner is due to be announced soon. This seems like a bit of a case in point where the architecture and the landscape competitions have been run separately. What's your view on that? And can you tell us a little bit about your proposal? It's a fantastic project. It would suit us down to the ground. You know, if you look at some of the aerial photographs of Highgate Cemetery in the 30s, there was very little woodland there. And now it is an urban forest. And that is fantastic. It's a place where you can utterly just step away from all your stresses and strains and become utterly immersed. But it's an issue in terms of the balance of conserving the assets, the heritage assets that are there. So there is, it's a perfect example of this balance of um, human nature of uh, biodiversity and culture and so our approach really is to build on that magnificence in terms of its otherness 
that needs to be done very, very much in tune with the local community. The way in which we framed it up is good woodland management and the way that a natural woodland works, where you do have trees that fall and they are then left there and then they rot into the ground and provide nutrients to the soil. Instead of that happening naturally and waiting for that for to happen, that needs to be accelerated in certain pockets. So it's an incremental woodland management, very much based on conservation principles to enhance, to allow sunlight to the ground flora so that you can get more diversity there and to create a more expressive and innovative approach to urban drainage to the conveyance of water through the site because it's a tremendously steep sloping site it's got you know the fleet is springing up all over the place around there so to express that flow of water and water is is so much to do with life there's a lot that can be explored there that that is known by a relatively small community so we feel that it's got great potential in that respect it's subtle subtle moves over many many years so that's the way we work we're not really signature designers we work very much with the land and with the communities that we engage with so if they want big fancy statements we won't win it (laughs) so thinking about a kind of scale of formality of landscapes from highly maintained spaces at one end to the picturesque as a stylized representation of nature to more wilder spaces at, at the other end of the scale. If we think about biodiversity and engaging more with natural processes, how does that fit in with the sort of canon of landscape architecture? Are things going to get more informal now to accommodate that? Well, I remember when I w- we were collaborating with Muff Architecture Art, so Eliza Fioran and myself have had 10 rich years of, coll- of an extraordinary collaboration. And I remember someone said, oh, I get it. It's just got to be ugly to be good. And we went, um, no, not really. But let's tell you a bit more about what we're trying to do. I think that was because we'd left the Budlier because it's very good biodiversity, it was there. We didn't have very much money. And there's a kind of interesting narrative, isn't there, about the fact that Budlier is so high in terms of providing for urban bee pollination, but in our minds, it signals dereliction. So that's quite an interesting little thing going on there. It's amazingly versatile, doesn't need watering, you know. So we're talking about engaging with the landscape, with urban wildness, if you like. Self-seeded trees, why not? They're no less important than trees that are planted and they're probably going to do better because they've got there themselves. So there's an interesting tussle between those manicured landscapes, many of which are historic, many, many manicured landscapes that are built today still, which require a huge amount of management and maintenance. And that's fine if you've got an army of gardeners with appropriate horticultural expertise. But I think 
horticulture has been so demoted by the government over the last 10, 20 years. It's quite terrifying. It's the most wonderful profession. It should be up there as one of the top skills to have. And yet somehow it's much better to be in the city punching numbers in a glass tower. So I think it's a whole combination of things. The fact that parks have no statutory funding, they work on zero budgets, designing the management and maintenance plan is something for us that starts right from the word go and is worked at in parallel. We don't design and then pass over and say, there you go, there's a big liability. We work with very, very tight budgets and I think it's irresponsible to put into the ground something which cannot be sustained into the future. That's where the community engagement is so critical because there's so many fantastically passionate, crazy people out there who will become, if, you're, if you've done your work right and you've brought them on board, volunteers to support the local authority. But it's a very sad state of affairs, our parks departments. And after this last year of the pandemic, there's been a huge amount of use of our parks, which um, has taken its toll and um, I hope everyone has now realises the value. So the formalities, it's interesting, the formalities, there's one other thing I want to say about that, which is if one thinks about these classic Capability Brown avenues at Lenin, you know, all of one species, all running 500 yards half, or even a mile, down to a monument at the end, we literally, because of biosecurity and the increase of disease with our broadleaf trees. We cannot do that anymore. We need to have diversity, not only in our communities, but also in our tree canopy. And so it's very exciting to explore this new aesthetic of avenues which are multi-species. And it takes some convincing, but this is what we need to do. You know, this issue of diversity comes at a time where Black Lives Matter and there's so many narratives which are interlinked between ecology and ourselves as a, as a species. And we need to place ourselves right in the center of ecology in order that we can see that diversity is an absolute prerequisite of a healthy planet. That's super interesting. So how does the kind of planning or planting or landscaping for diversity that you're talking about relate to rewilding? Is that yet again something else, rewilding? Yeah, um, I mean, I know Charlie Burrell and his uh, NEP, if you haven't been there, is the most phenomenal place. We opened up some soil trenches with our soil scientists to look at, at how the soils had uh, started to repair themselves after intensive agriculture over many, many decades. And the good news is that within a 10-year period, they're already starting to restore uh, some structure. The rewilding project is not just about what's happening above ground, it's also about what's happening below ground with the soils. So it is a very important movement. It has the potential for enhancing biodiversity enormously. It has enormous potential in terms of our providing for our health and well-being in cities. We are, are our style, if you like. I mean, you talk about George the um, here East. We did the Canal Park 
And actually, those trees that you mentioned before, they're pollarded, so they are on a cycle. So that's supposed to be like that. But oh, I'll talk to you about that later. So that's okay. Um, but that, that's all designed. All that wildness is designed. And we wanted to provide that sense of unofficial countryside where you could be right close to Hackneywick Station overground and yet somewhere else. Well, I find it really heartening. I, I recently read Isabella Tree's wonderful book, and, and to see what can happen in 10 years is such a good message because everything we hear is like the doom and gloom and, you know, we're never going to make these targets. And, and when you see, when you do put your mind to it and, you, you know, you make these changes, what is possible? Yeah. And I think it's quite controversial in the farming community. So it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, it's not for everywhere, obviously. But I think certainly in cities, that combination of the built environment and that sense of wildness, whatever that means to any of us, is a wonderful combination. And uh, we're very, very fortunate in the legacy of the commons in London and to be able to get out to Hampstead Heath 360 hectares and feel you're somewhere else. Is, is We've got a wonderful history of, of those kind of places in Epping Forest having been fought for by the people to hold those open with the Metropolitan Act to secure those for future generations. So we've, we, we have the legacy, we have that culture. It just seems like right now, with the intensification of the city, there is not the right amount of open space or new parks that are being created commensurate with the intensification of the city, in my view. So I think, why not create new parks? So we, we do, whenever we, when, whenever we are asked, we're not shy in putting forward propositions for new parks. But if they're linked, you can create this more of a web rather than a Victorian grand statement. Joe, I wanted to change tax a bit. We, we've been asking our guests about their personal journeys, and I've, I heard you tell your story very eloquently on the Scaffold podcast not too long ago, so I would direct any listeners who want to hear more from Joe to that. And you also go into considerable detail about the genesis of the Dalston Curve Garden there. But I wanted to ask you, you come from a family of architects where both your father and grandfather were architects. So what drew you into landscape architecture? And, uh, you know, over these years that you've been practicing, have there been particular moments as the climate emergency became more and more evident that you consider turning points in your thinking? Well, I was very fortunate. My um, inspiration was no one less than Dame Sylvia Crow, who was an extraordinary woman who drove ambulances in the war and then basically turned around the Forestry Commission in her professional life and told them how it should be done rather than planting single species. And it just felt like it was the perfect profession <laughs> really for me and I didn't think twice about it and happily got into Edinburgh College of Art and literally no one knew about landscape architecture. I was the third first year only when I started and we needed to be very robust in the way in which we presented our work and our, our ideas. Otherwise in those days you just got kicked off the course. And then I think my family has been a huge influence and then my business partner as well who is, a, who is an architect and when we set up the practice uh, 
that was a big moment for us. And actually, we called ourselves environmental architects back in 1986. And I see the the RCA has just opened a course a couple of years ago, which we have been mentoring on called environmental architecture. So I thought, oh, that's just only 30 years later. It's sort of come round. So he was, you know, my partner in life and my partner in business. And that was um, very influential. And my current creative partner, Neil Davidson, who's also trained at Edinburgh College of Art. We feel very, a great sense of urgency about the current situation. So we also do research with King's College London on uh, a project called Urban Mind, which we got seed funding for a pilot project back uh, five years ago about mental well-being and impact of nature. And we've been working with the cross-disciplinary team about early diagnosis in psychosis in finding a way to quantify the value of, of nature and to, in order that that can not only help in terms of clinical work, but also in terms of planning policy. So we're very a slow burn. We, we don't do wow projects. We mull over, we, it's a bit like composting. We just layer another layer of litter on the top. We feel those worms going down. We create another publication. We extend our wonderful network. And that's the way we're working on our latest really wonderful project with Carmody Groke on, on the British Library in, in Yorkshire. So it's, it's a very slow and uh, deep, deep way of working. I've often said that landscape architecture is a profession of the future, and I'm really thrilled because I have a young cousin who's my namesake who is studying landscape architecture in the States, and my understanding is that there's a complete shortage of landscape architects in the UK at the moment. What are your observations on that? Well, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I've just finished my second stint as external examiner at, at Edinburgh College of Art, and I was at Manchester Metropolitan University as well. And the demise of the landscape courses is extraordinary. And I have no idea why the universities are not getting out to the schools and to the careers advisors that there is this profession. I can only think that it starts there. I do a lot of work where I go to careers evenings and I stick up massive drawings on the sports hall and I nobble kids where their parents are trying to move them towards history or something. And I go, no, you want this one? It is the most fantastic profession. We need armies of landscape architects to come on board, but we have a, a decade in which to turn the fortunes of this planet around and we are and, and courses are closing and I have to put that to the whole built environment profession. You know the review that Terry Farrell did a while back and one of the ideas that he had which I've been promoting because I thought it was so brilliant is to have a foundation course in all the schools for the built environment. So anyone can go there, do a bit of planning, a bit of architecture, a bit of landscape architecture, go, ah, it's not architecture I want to do, it's landscape. And there's a real demand, there's a real demand. And if you go into any of the schools, the architects are all designing landscapes. 
but with very little landscape tuition. And I think the big difference between ourselves and an architectural practice is from the word go. We've, our, our timeline goes back maybe <laughs> millennia and it might go forward millennia. You know, our time zone is so deep and so long and it's rooted and grounded in the geology of a place which underlies all buildings and it goes forward and engages with these critical interlinked aspects of climate and biodiversity and health. So when we go on site, we're fighting the corner of natural processes all the way through the delivery aspect of the design because we will often get a contractor that says, oh, but, you know, we've got a delay, da, da, da. Uh, we can do the planting then. I said, no, you can't do the planting then because this is all the impact. And I'm afraid spring comes round every year at the same time. <laughs> there's, a, there's no extension or <laughs> given to the seasons. You know, you have to work with them. That is something that we engage with very fully. And going back to your point of procurement, I think procurement is absolutely essential. To my mind, design and build just does not work for landscapes. What you need to do is have contractors that are experienced, that understand the way in which one delivers a landscape, which is, is very different from a building, in order to work with all the exceptional circumstances that we now find ourselves in environmentally and that comes right round to the planetary situation when you go back out to the micro we have to be engaged in these processes in order for us to unpack what we can do as individuals to do our part in terms of climate change we can't just sit back and I think that's that that engagement is what what we're really really interested in because I, I believe that people once engaged then we're good to go, you know, then, then really, really seismic events can happen in terms of changing our course because we can't go back to normal. We need to use this last year as the launch pad for a new way of living and a new way of valuing who we are and where we are and how we, we relate to our communities that we live within on a local and a global. <laughs> that's a good place to end it's just really inspiring talking to you and I really thank you thanks Hattie thank yeah. you George thank you so much it's been really fascinating On our next episode dedicated to how landscape architecture is evolving to meet the ecological crisis, we will hear about two recent high-profile competitions where the approach to landscape is central to the winning schemes, the Thamesmead Waterfront and the Home of 2030. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, Please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.